this episode of 92Y Talks, economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman talks with Financial Times journalist Jillian Tett about the state of the economy. The conversation was recorded on April 28, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, I think that's a scale of ovation that probably probably beats even Piketty. So it's great to have you here tonight. Um, um, I want to talk a lot about the economy tonight. I want to talk about what's wrong with it, what can be done to fix it, um, what are the issues to do with inequality, why growth is disappointing, things like that. But I wouldn't be doing my job as a journalist if I didn't start with a question that has dominated every single dinner party discussion I've been to recently. It's the first question I get asked whenever I go back to head office in London. It is, what on earth do you make of the current election of Trump? (laughs) I promise you, we will talk about total factor productivity later on, but first, please, Trump. Okay. Um, Well, um, you you need to know, by the way, um, New York Times rules uh, do not allow me to do endorsements, uh, so you have no idea uh, which candidates I favor, or even which party I favor. (laughs) all right. I think it's rather more clear which ones you do not favour. Right. So why do we start with those? So my, my, my take on the Trump phenomenon is, uh, although we can talk a lot about the person, though preferably not, and, uh, uh, <laughs> but what, what happened is he, he actually broke um, into the, uh, the, the con that the Republican establishment has been pursuing for decades now, which is one in which they mobilize the base based on, uh, well, largely race, to some extent, uh, cultural anxiety and and all of that. Uh, But then the actual policies are all about uh, reinforcing the, the incomes of, of people at the top. So it's, it's been a, there, there's an economic ideology which is used to justify that, but what actually gets the vote out is, um, is pretty much raw dislike for the increasing diversity of America. Uh, what Trump basically did was say, hey, um, you, can order, uh, you can order a la carte. Uh, you, don't, you, you can have the, uh, the, the, the dislike of, of those people you can have the, the hostility to immigrants and people in general who don't look like you without having to buy into the, to the economic ideology. So I'll give it to you, and I'll give it to you straight and raw and none of these euphemisms that the, that the establishment does. And it turns out that within the Republican base, that's a very, very popular position. It's actually kind of interesting to ask why nobody did that before. Um, and um, I, I'm reasonably sure that this is something that appeals to 40% of of 20% of the country, that Republicans who vote in the primaries like this sort of thing, but even actually even a slight majority of them, by and large, do not. And nationally, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, don't, I don't think uh, that, that he's actually, I, I have not much expectation of, of President Trump, though God knows what can happen. But it's, it, it's amazing, I, I, actually, I actually find it not at all mysterious. What I find is, the question is, uh, the, the mystery actually is why it took so long for somebody to break through. What a, what a, we, we know why, why white working class voters vote Republican, and why were they able for so long to link that to supply side economics, and that's now gone. So you're a man who works with <coughs> numbers. What <coughs> probability would you attach today to Trump win, winning the nomination and or winning the presidency? 
Okay, um, nomination, um, I'll go with what the, the betting markets say, which is 86%. I think they're probably higher than that. Um, the, they also say something like a 20% chance of the presidency, which I think is way too high. I just think that that's, uh, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I just think that if you look at, at who we are, this is, this is not what America is. I actually just, there was just a recent, um, Nate Silver just did a, what, what, is, what are the most typical cities and states in America? What are the ones that look like the country? And the state that looks most like the country is Illinois, but number two is New York. So if you want to think, what does America look like? It looks like New York State. And New York State, let me tell you, ain't going to go for Trump. Uh, interesting. We should do an audience poll, though this may not be entirely representative this of the is... state. <laughs> right. It's, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be quite as much of a blowout as if it were held on the Upper West Side, but still. <laughs> okay, I'm going to come back to the Upper West Side and Bernie Sanders in a minute. Before I do, so 20% Trump probability, what odds would you attach to um, Hillary Clinton? Well, she's a very near lock for the nomination now. I mean, short of, yeah. short of a, of a meteor strike or something. And, um, um, and or, then, or an FBI investigation. Yeah, if that was going to, you know, that, that, that ain't going to happen. Uh, if, it were gonna, if there were anything there, they would have come up. Anyway, but the... Um, okay, you, uh, heard it, you heard it here first. Right. <laughs> um, no, and I, I, I well, I, I'd say, you know, it, basically, it's, it's, going to, it's overwhelmingly likely to be a Trump-Clinton election, and it's overwhelmingly likely... 80, 85% to be, uh, to be a Clinton victory. So um, going, going to be, it's going to be quite a stretch, actually. I think we, you know, first, uh, first our first uh, African-American president followed by our first woman. It's going to be quite something. You've been very vocal. I don't think I need to do an audience right. poll at this point. Right. Um, <laughs> you've been very vocal in criticizing Bernie Sanders which has surprised many of your passionate devotees. What is wrong with Sanders, in your view? Why are you so critical of what he's doing and what he's still doing? Okay, so first, um, oh, I guess the, the obligatory disclaimer. I mean, given a... Uh, I'm not asking you to endorse anyone. I'm right. trying to explain to you why right. you're anti-endorsing someone. Right, and, and there's, there's nothing, right? If Sanders versus Trump would not be a hard decision to make, let's say. But the, um, so a lot of people assumed that because I'm very much a liberal, uh, that I would be, go for the candidate who was the most liberal uh, sounding in, in, the, in the primary. The trouble is, there's something, it, that's, from my, from my point of view, it's not just a matter of, you know, liberal good, conservative bad. It's also careful, hard thinking good, hard cho- facing up to hard choices good, uh, wishful thinking, fantasy uh, bad. And uh, from the beginning, it was kind of obvious to me, and I, I think it became even more clear over time, that, that the Sanders campaign was really animated by the belief that being on the right side excused you from really having to do hard thinking that if you said Wall Street is bad and, and the big banks are bad, that excused you from asking, well, what exactly does financial reform have to do? What, is, what, what, was, what did go wrong in 2008? Uh, and, and if you looked at that hard, it wasn't just the big banks. If you ask what kind of healthcare system should we have, well, well everybody I know in the healthcare field who wants reform would, would go for a single payer, would go for a Medicare-type system for everybody, but the question is not is that what you want? But what do you think you can actually do? What do you think can happen? So there was a, a lot of cutting of corners 
um, on the part of, of the Sanders campaign and the Sanders supporters, but let's just focus on the campaign. And a general tendency to say, well, if, you don't, if you're not with us, that must be because you're corrupted. And that's, that's not the kind of thing I like to associate myself with. So I found it pretty upsetting. And then um, in the course of the campaign, of the primary campaign, there was a fair bit of, of just uh, sniping at, at Hillary Clinton, who you know is far from far from perfect on many fronts, uh, but is also overwhelmingly likely to be the Democratic nominee. And at some point, you have to ask: At what point are you are you realistically advancing your cause? And at what point are you increasing the the chance that uh, that someone really really bad is going to be in the White House? Right. Well, you wrote in a recent column in response to people who are saying who didn't like your criticism of Sanders. As you know. I'm only saying these things because I'm a corporate whore and want a job with Hillary. Right, that was a blog post, but yes. <laughs> I got was... an amazing amount. It, it, it actually, it, it was, it's been an interesting experience, let's put it this way. I've been getting from, from Bernie supporters the kind of um, mail that I usually get from Rush Limbaugh listeners. <laughs> well, I'm fond of saying, I'm gonna, I am going to come on to economics in a minute because I say we live in the world of Alice in Wonderland economics of negative rates. We live, frankly, in a world of Alice in Wonderland politics where the extreme right, the extreme left are kind of meeting in all kinds of strange ways. And, you know, what, many of the normal um, relationships are literally turning upside down. Yeah. I, actually, I was going to say, it's, some people have noticed I have a Band-Aid on my nose. And uh, it's actually because of a scratch. I don't know where it came from. But I wanted to say a Bernie bro punched me in the head. <laughs> didn't actually. Um, no, but the other thing is somebody said that... Um, it's important to re- politics on the internet is not real politics, and the number of the number of real people out there who are as extreme um, as 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 your email inbox is 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 not very large. So, and I I think uh, this will on, on the Democratic side this will mostly fade away. Right. Know, there will be, there will be some you know, there there were people who were enthusiastic for Nader in 2000, and some of those people are, are Bernie or, or bust people now, but it's, uh, but it, it's not, ultimately it's not going to matter that much. Well, I'm sure you never expected to get that kind of reaction in relation to your Nobel Prize winning work on international trade. Uh, well, um, yes, anything but, can do it. Yeah, but I mean, on the serious question is, okay, I mean, do you want a job with Hillary? God, no. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, actually, let, let's be frank here. Um, the only jobs that... Um, that I could actually do uh, are, are ones that would be in many ways step down. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing... <laughs> okay, U.S. Treasury Secretary is a step down? No, the, I could not be U.S. Treasury Secretary. Should, that's, a, that's an administrative job. Somebody should take a look at my office. I'm just not... I'm absolutely <laughs> incapable of doing that. Council and of Economic Advisors? That's, that's a, a very important position, but, you know, I have... The New York Times is, is an institute... I, I wouldn't give up that position very lightly. No, I, I have no desire. If I, I, I will not be in, in a Clinton administration. Just say that flatly. It's not going to happen. Okay. Well, you heard that first hit as well. But um, if you were, imagine that something happened. Right. Let's just imagine, you know, for the sake of argument, that you turn up in January and you're actually in the Clinton administration or um, in, in, in the White House. And you're faced with the current U.S. economy, which um, we have the front page of the Financial Times today, right. which says, slowdown in U.S. growth sparks doubt over economic dur- durability. This is actually tomorrow's FT. This is a print of it. Um, what would your first priority be? Well, um, okay, so unfortunately, the immediate response is going to 
rest on, on the shoulders of, of Janet Yellen, not whoever's in, in, in the White House, because there's not much they can do. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a real, there is a real concern. I've been worried that, that, the, um, that the recovery is, is not too durable. I'm not sure too, how you want to place too much weight on, on one quarter, but still, uh, there are a lot of reasons to think that, it's, that we are by no means securely out of the woods. And, um, and you want to um, very much, you want to keep, I, I say the Fed made a mistake in raising interest rates, even the small amount it did. Um, you want to keep pedal to the metal on monetary policy. And if I had my druthers, um, we would have a substantial fiscal uh, stimulus program. We'd, we'd have a big infrastructure spend. Uh, but the trouble, of course, the current White House knows that too. Well, can I take, okay, let's wind that back and take those pieces one by one. Um, so first of all, you say the main onus for action would lie with Janet Yellen. That's, yes, not because... I mean, because many people in the audience will say, but hang on a sec, you know, the central banks have already done extraordinary amount of stuff for a very long time. They've already ripped up the rule book um, that we all grew up with in terms of what central banks could do. And how on earth can you say that the onus still lies with people like Janet Yellen? It's not because of the economics. I, I agree. I think monetary policy has been, the Fed has been asked to bear a, a weight that is really unsuitable given its, its tools. The same is true of, of the European Central Bank. Uh, the, um, but the trouble is, who are you going to call? The, if, uh, um, actually, both sides of the Atlantic, with fiscal policy, spending, would be a possible, would be a, there are overwhelming reasons to be doing more of that, especially on, on public investment, on infrastructure. Um, but how is it going to pass a Republican-controlled House of Representatives? Uh, which we're unfortunately likely to have even, even if, the, uh, if the Democrats do retake the Senate. How in, in Europe are you going to do anything in the face of the Germans? Okay. So all this weight falls on central banks, not because they are the right people to be doing it, but because they're the only people who can do anything at all. So what exactly would you like Yellen to do? Um, cut rates to zero, turn it negative? Are you expecting to see negative rates in the U.S.? Do you want them to buy even more bonds? I mean, there's, yeah. you know, they're running out of bonds to buy, aren't they? I mean... Well, not, not just yet, but yes. I mean, first of all, I... I or helicopter money. Ah, uh, yes. For, the, for those who don't know, helicopter money... Actually, people are a little unclear what that means, but it's, it, and it, it's an old metaphor that comes from Milton Friedman originally of having helicopters go out there and drop money, just, uh, which is not going to happen. Uh, but the idea is that you print money and use it either directly to buy government debt or you actually somehow get the, center, get the Fed to simply send everybody a check. Um, the and, and the question is whether that really makes any difference because all of that is, to make it matter at all, it ends up being fiscal policy. It ends up that you're, the Fed is buying government, U.S. government bonds so that the federal government can spend more, can give people transfers or can spend more on infrastructure or something, which, and then you're back to the same problem. The House won't let that happen. Congress won't let that happen. Or it goes out there and just drops money on people, but actually Congress not going to let that happen either because they would say that's, that's a giveaway and, and you can't do that. Um, so, no, but anyway, on all of these things, um, at, I mean, for the U.S., uh, what I would do is, if, if things are really looking weak, I think reversal, just going back to zero interest rates, would help just because it would be a psychological shock. People say, oh, they really are going to do whatever it takes, and it, it would be, at least have the effect of somewhat encouraging spending. Um, I'm not... We have these... Yeah. I mean, negative rates is... 
it's, it's worth trying. I mean, among other things, it's been a, a revelation. Who even thought that was possible? But I don't think it makes that much difference. I mean, do you think it's actually worked in Japan or Europe? Um, no, I mean, not, not, not actually no, but I'm not sure. Um, the, the best I can make out is that when rate, interest rates are already extremely low, all that really matters is expectations. If you can get people to believe that the central bank will do stuff, that inflation will be higher than they previously thought, that, that the next recovery, they, they won't tighten as fast as, they might, as you previously thought they would. That's what matters. And, and all of these, to the extent that all of these exotic stuff, negative rates, extraordinary bond purchases have mattered, I think it's mostly, this is controversial, but I think it's mostly because by doing stuff that you would have not thought was possible or, or politically possible before, the, the ECB or the Fed is telling, or the Bank of Japan is telling people, we are not the people you thought we were. We are much more aggressive than you thought, which is, which is good. But I, I, I mean, I, I have with, real doubts about how much it's going to But with work. all due respect, that sounds like an awful lot like monetary voodoo. Well, not quite, because it, it, we do think that there is a, that a credible commitment to, actually, this is something I wrote God, 18 years ago, I was, I was writing about Japan, and um, you know, which it was, uh, was staging what we now know was a dress rehearsal for the, you know, the, the play we're all in now. And I was arguing that the, the Bank of Japan needed to credibly promise to be irresponsible. And that's, in effect, what we're doing. And, and it, there's good, solid economics that says that if you can really convince people that in the future, next time the economy is recovering, you will, in fact, let inflation rise, that that is, should have an effect even now. Now, it's, it's not exactly voodoo, but it, it's true that it's relying an awful lot on trying to put on a show that convinces people that you have changed. And it's, right. yeah. So Janet Yellen has to stand up there and say, I'm going to be really, really irresponsible. That's right, something Believe like me. that. In fact, it would probably help if they, if, precisely because this would be so strange, it would probably help uh, make it credible that something has changed. No, but it's... It, right. Well, let's imagine that, for whatever reason, Janet Yellen doesn't want to be wildly irresponsible. Or let's imagine that you actually had a rational, sane Congress that you could work with. Um, Your first step then would be to unveil a big stimulus package. Is that the infrastructure spending? Yes. The the case for spending more on infrastructure is just... it's, It's overwhelming. You know, in general, in economics, you want to be suspicious of people who claim that, that, that their preferred policy solves all problems, that it does everything at, at, at the same time. But right now, um, the federal government can borrow at, at if, if you look at inflation-protected bonds, essentially zero. They, it, it's essentially free to borrow. Um, there's really quite good reason to believe that spending more would boost the economy, not just now, but also in the long term. Uh, we also have desperately unmet needs. Um, obvious things like like transportation network. Uh, you know, how, how could spending money on an extra tunnel to New Jersey? Um, that there were, of course, we know why that didn't happen, but, but still, still desperately needed. But also less obvious things like water systems. Um, so we have desperately needed investments. The money is free. Um, the, even in purely fiscal terms, there's a pretty good case that an infrastructure build right now would actually improve your fiscal situation, that it would expand the future economy enough so that the extra revenue would more than offset whatever the costs of the borrowing would turn out to be. So it's, it's an overwhelming case. So when you have something that's absolutely you know, a terrific, 
we're all sounding like Trump these days. And we're a terrific, great, well, the best case um, <laughs> is, is exactly, of course, why you can't do it at all politically. Well, actually, oddly enough, that was going to be my next question. Because one of the really extraordinary things about this new Alice in Wonderland political world that we're in is that when I sit down and talk to people around Trump who are fashioning, you know, his economic policy, insofar as he has an economic policy at the moment, right. um, it starts to sound suspiciously like his policy is going to be build America, rebuild America. You know, they talk a lot about infrastructure spending. They don't seem to worry very much about the debt. It's all about creating construction jobs. It's pretty much saying exactly the same things that you're saying. So doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? I, well, I guess what I, would, what I think about Trump is that you know, he is pretty much obviously just making it up on the spot as he goes along, right? He hasn't thought about it hard, which is, by the way, why um, I think on the whole... Uh, you know, given, given the choice between Trump and Cruz, who's the only remaining candidate with any chance, uh, look, Trump doesn't know much about anything. Um, Cruz knows a lot of things which are absolutely not true. And so uh, there's at least a chance that, that in kind of a random scattershot fashion, uh, you know, Trump might do some, some, uh, some of the right things. Uh, although, yeah. But who, I mean, who knows? But I, as I said, I don't think this is something we need to think about too much, jump right. off that bridge when we come to it, sort of. Right. So just going back to the numbers again, um, and you, the audience will all have a chance to ask questions. Um, so what's the probability you give right now to a U.S. recession over the next year? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure I can put a probability on it. Um, I guess at some level. I, I would say, I would still say probably pretty low probability, 20% or below, of a recession over the next year. I'm more concerned about the three, four-year outlook. Um, and what, what that comes down to, so um, um, I actually, so this is where I actually do, I think, have some, a little bit of, of stuff that I have worked on over the years and have some, a little bit more focus, uh, a little bit more than, than just uh, casual thinking here. Uh, I believe that in, it's very difficult in today's world for a country to stay prosperous when large parts of the rest of the world are in a persistent slump. Uh, if you actually add, and that's not just because there's international trade, which is not actually as big as all that. Even now, the U.S. sells only uh, about 2% of what it produces to Europe. It sells only 12% you know, uh, of what it produces to the outside world. Um, but capital flows very freely, um, and if we try try to imagine, suppose that actually suppose that we told a story, which is what the Fed, the story the Fed has been telling, which is that well the U.S. is on a solid recovery and we can start to normalize interest rates and we can move up and and have uh, something that looks you know, eventually go back to three four percent um, basic you know uh, Fed funds rate, um, even while Europe is stuck in what appears to be a permanent slump when, when the markets are telling us that European rates are going to be at zero or negative for, for many, many years. Something's wrong with that picture because that's a money-making machine. People could be taking tons of money, borrowing, borrowing in Germany and putting it into the U.S. And if they, if they try to do that, the, the dollar will get very strong, which has already happened to a large extent. U.S. exports will become totally uncompetitive. We'll start to import you know, all of the... the 
I don't know if this is true, literally, but say all the BMW plants in South Carolina will close down and, and we'll start buying them all from Germany instead. And so that's going, the U.S. ends up sharing in the European slump. And I, I believe that some version of that is the right story for today's world. So the U.S. really, there are some reasons to think that the U.S. has stronger fundamentals. Our demography is more favorable than Europe or Japan. Or um, there are some good things about our overall setup. We don't have the, the crippling effects of the euro. Um, but all of that doesn't help so much if we have a world in which really you cannot stand alone and be prosperous while everyone else is depressed. And I think that's the kind of world we're now in. So basically, it's not America's fault. It's the rest of the world right now. Well, yeah, although it's fault is the right, wrong word, right? We have, right. I, I mean, I think a lot of what's going on in the world right now is, is in fact, demography. Um, the, uh, it's very difficult, un, unless you have other policies, it's very difficult to keep uh, an economy at full employment if you have a shrinking working age population. Very difficult. Why, why would businesses invest? How do you can keep building houses if, if the number of people of working age is actually falling? That's where Japan has been since the 1990s. It's a large part of the reason why Japan is stuck. It's where Europe is now. The, the euro area is now, has a shrinking, it, European population dynamics right now look like those of Japan circa 1999. Uh, the U.S. still has positive growth, uh, partly because we still have children, uh, uh, but not as many as before. And um, we have had immigration, although that's largely dried up, and of course, President Trump will deal with that. Anyway, the, uh, um, uh, but, but not so much, even, even we face that. So I think it's, it's mostly not that we've, I mean, there are mistakes, God knows, uh, that, that have led to this, but basically it's a situation where um, the old rules where ordinary fiscal policy and conventional monetary policy and, uh, and low but stable inflation are are good enough to have full employment are probably no longer true about today's world. Right. Um, so out of the global picture, though, when you look at that sort of somewhat depressing scenario you've laid out, um, what worries you most about the rest of the world right. right now? Where are the points that people here should be avoiding at all costs in their investments? Well, China is, is scary. China is extremely frightening. I mean, it's, uh, now it's difficult to, to do the numbers because, well, all, you know, all, all economic statistics are, are science fiction, but some are more fictional than most. And so China, God knows what the, uh, what the real numbers are. But, but China clearly has an unsustainable situation. They, they, uh, they have a, an economy that's built around enormous investment, very little consumer demand, which you can do for a while if you can grow at 9 or 10% a year, but they've run out of uh, peasants to move to the city, so they can't do that anymore. And they, they need to make a huge adjustment, which they have not done. They've been papering it over with, with incredible rates of growth of credit, which also can't go on. So China looks ready to have a... Um, you know, a, a a possibly very scary bust. I mean, it, one of those things that startled me, I hadn't even realized it, was that um, uh, China is suffering capital flight now. People pulling their money out, which is funny, you can see it. You can, you know, my friend, the real estate broker, has an awful lot of Chinese buyers and, and so on. Um, but it's, it's, last year it was a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars of capital flight out of China. They can't go on. So China is, is, a, is a bomb ready to go off. And do you think it's going to be as bad as the subprime mortgage bomb in 2007 in America? Is this going no. to be sort of another debt bubble going pop? It'll go pop, but the thing is that foreigners own very little of the debt. 
So the financial spillover to us won't be big directly. It's not going to be the case that the U.S. banks are going to lose a lot of money in China because they haven't been able to be in that market. Um, but it'll, it'll spill over into hitting the Japanese economy hard. It'll, uh, it'll hit uh, other emerging markets that sell raw materials to China hard, and that then spills back to us. So that's the one. Now, the thing that looks most like subprime is probably the energy sector. Uh, we had this enormous fracking shale oil boom financed by lots and lots of debt, and then it turned out, hey, the world doesn't actually want that much oil. And so oil prices have crashed, and there you have a lot of debt that looks ready to go bad. So, no, given the way that ten things tend to work, the actual crisis will probably come from some other direction entirely, right? I mean, well, <laughs> okay, well, we've already gone through China and oil. Um, what about Brexit? Okay, so again, Brexit... I, I think I know who's responsible for this terminology, by the way. I think it was Willem Boyder who came up with Grexit for yes. Greek entry, and now it's become a, a horrible, ugly term for any kind of exit scenario. Anyway, so Brexit, Bre Brexit is, is a scenario whereby Britain, which votes right. um, in um, six weeks' time on whether to stay part of the European Union or not, um, Brexit is the scenario whereby they decide to leave. Right. Um, and that's... Um, um, that's there... Brexit is scary, um, but, but also hard. Well, okay, I'm, I'm much more conflicted about that than I expected to be. Um, I think it's a bad idea. And if when I try to do the estimates, I think it'll make Britain poorer, though we're not talking catastrophe. We're talking maybe 2 or 3% poorer, but that's... You know, in terms of it's, it's kind of it's really hard to come up with policies that'll make a country two or three percent richer. So this is not a small number, uh, um, and it's it's going to be there, there would be a lot of financial turmoil, though it, probably not long term. Um, the reason that it's it's hard a little bit is that Europe that, that the European Union is a very very badly run uh, institution, and it, it's and not just because the people are misguided, but because structurally it's all wrong. They, they pushed for a degree of integration, open borders, common currency, that they don't have the, the political institutions to handle. And so Europe is kind of a mess. Uh, I, the only thing we can say is looking at British politics right now, uh, it's not at all clear that, that Britain outside of Europe would be any better. Uh, but what a, what a horrific situation. I don't know how big a financial shock it is. I think it would be a huge political shock. The, uh, the, uh, because I think that actually Europe, Europe is a mess. Europe without Britain, you'd like to think it would be a wake-up call. In, in practice, it would probably be even worse, probably be, uh, leave things even, even more in, this, in the kind of paralysis and, and downward spiral that Europe is in right now. You can tell I'm really, really up on, on affairs <laughs> in Europe. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's actually quite hard because uh, the, Europe, that's a, the European project is, is a very important and, and historically a very noble endeavor. It has done incredibly good for humanity, but now it's really, it's really uh, in, in, in very bad shape, and I don't know how to fix it. Okay, so China is a debt bomb that's about to explode. Um, Japan is endlessly stagnant and undermined by demographics. The energy market is another debt bomb that may explode. Right. Europe is mired in mess. So what makes you cheerful right now? Okay. I am way more optimistic about climate change than I was even a few years ago. Um, 
for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the, the politics have improved. Um, even though, I mean, the U.S. has to be, without the U.S., we don't get anywhere. And you used to think that because it was impossible to pass legislation in the, in the U.S. that we could get nowhere. But we've just, it turns out that, that if, um, if Democrats hold the White House, uh, we will probably have a lot. The, the clean power plan from Obama is, is a pretty significant step. A lot can be done under existing energy, uh, existing environmental law. So, and then, but you would say, well, that's going to be way inadequate given the scale of the problem, except that technology is our friend now. Incredible progress on uh, renewable energy sources. Solar power has gone from being hippy-dippy uh, uh, castles in the air to seriously competitive with, with fossil fuels. Um, things, they're, they're every, every week you read about some new clever technology that brings the possibility of a, of a low-carbon economy closer. I just read today about the... the um, Energy storage, you know, we're working on battery technology, but there's another new plan, which is uh, you actually have a local electric railroad that hauls concrete slabs up to the top of the hill and then brings them slowly back down again to release electricity when it's needed. And my God, you know, that's fun. But it's also, it's, it's just showing that we're actually, this is one place where innovation is our friend. And the more stuff, the more renewable energy we get, the stronger the political constituency for moving further down that direction. So um, the, the economy, for the next four or five years, I'm really worried. Saving the planet, we're up to where I actually think we might survive. Optimistic. <laughs> okay, that's the good news. And of course, there's also the soda, soda tax, which you've come out. Oh, well, yeah. No, that's an interesting... I mean, uh, yeah, so there is the, the soda tax... Um, proposals in various places, and rather uh, we're, with the proceeds used to fund good stuff, uh, pre-K or whatever. And, um, and this, in the last guttering of the, debtor, uh, of the Democratic primary, uh, Bernie Sanders came out against it because soda tax does fall most heavily on, on low-income people, which is true. Um, but uh, I, I think that's kind of... Mis let, let me put it this way. The, the reason why something like a soda tax um, is, is good is, yes, it is a regressive tax, but be, it could be used to finance very progressive programs, which is more important in itself. And then also, this is one of those places where we know that the presumption of economic rationality, that people can make the right choices, don't need to be nudged, is absolutely totally wrong. This is a case where, where the behavioral economics of, of people drinking soda that they really shouldn't be, and children drinking soda that they really shouldn't be is huge. So this is one of those places where um, it's not going to solve the problems, but uh, God knows, this, this is one place where there is a government intervention that should help, um, looks like it's politically feasible, it can be done at a local level, so it doesn't have to get through, you know, it does not have to get past uh, the, uh, Paul Ryan, and, and so it's one of those good things we should be doing. Well, I don't think Trump has yet expressed an opinion on soda tax. So. Uh, there is a... Or maybe he has, maybe I. I, mean, what, I, the, what, I think that the, uh, the tanning salon tax is still in uh, the Affordable <laughs> Care Act. He'd probably be, anyway. Well, <laughs> that seems a good note on which to ask if anyone in the audience would like to bring up questions. I believe there are some cards which are passed up to me. Um, unsurprisingly, we have a very large stack already um, and let me say, I believe that we can get questions not just from people who are here 
tonight in New York and Manhattan, but also in all the other wonderful places like Boca Raton, where people are also <laughs> hanging on your every word. So I have to start with the one that I didn't go into because I knew it would come up in the questions, which is, is it a good idea to break up big banks? Um, you know, it, definitely maybe. Um, <laughs> the question is, is that, is that the priority on policy? And the, at least the way I read it, the, um, the crisis was not actually mostly about big banks. Um, and in fact, it wasn't even mostly about big bank holding companies which had other activities. So restoring Glass-Steagall, it was a mistake to get rid of Glass-Steagall, which, which separated uh, investment banking from commercial banking. But it wasn't, it was, if, you, if you ask where did the crisis, the, what were the two co firms that, that brought the world to its knees in, in the third week of, of September 20, 2008. Uh, one of them was Lehman, which was not all that big. Um, and the other was AIG, which was an insurance company. And so breaking up Citigroup, uh, I mean, God knows, would, uh, I, I would shed no tears for seeing them broken up, but, that's, but that doesn't seem like, like the, it, it shouldn't be the centerpiece of policy. And interestingly, it is, it, to some extent, they're, breaking, they're shrinking themselves anyway, because it turns out that under the financial reform we have, Dodd-Frank, which is not uh, only part of what we should have, but is not trivial, there's a lot of incentives for these big uh, financial firms to get smaller. So, no, I mean, um, if you gave me a, a list of, if, if you gave me, if there were no political budget constraints, there were no uh, sense that there's only so many things you can take on, sure, I'd break up the big banks, but it would not be first, second, third, or fourth in my list of things, even on the financial sector, that we need to do. But, I mean, the reason why people want to break up big banks is a perception, apart from market dominance, that... Um, the government will be on the hook um, if those banks are troubled. Do you think that the government, this is my question, do you think the government should be responsible for protecting banks in any way? Or should it be basically purely down to market surveillance and if a bank goes bust, the depositors just lose? No, we, we, we've been through that. We've, I mean, that's actually Lehman uh, week. Uh, what happened was over the weekend they said, well, we'll just <coughs> let the markets work and let Lehman fail. Um, and that's how they, and that, that was on Monday. They saw what, what was happening as a result. And uh, by early Tuesday morning, it was, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. In, in practice, it's not going to happen. You can't. They, we, we've seen, I mean, uh, uh, yes, in, in 1930, um, they, they were pure and they allowed the, the uh, I guess, the Bank of, of the United States, uh, which was a small bank in the Bronx, actually, to fail. And the next thing they knew, the entire U.S. banking system had collapsed. No, you, you cannot. You, you do need to step in. Now, you don't need to bail out the bank stockholders. And I, was, I wanted to see the, the uh, uh, back in, in early 2009, I wanted to see um, a couple of the big players temporarily taken into receivership by the U.S. government. And that was, that was an argument that Joe Stiglitz and I got to make. Uh, we, we, we got to make it at the White House and And, and, and it was lost. Round, roundly ignored. Yes, it was ignored. But all right. Uh, but, but the point is that... And so... And, and of course, we, we have... You know, we bail out... It's not just big banks. One of the interesting things, if you ask what did... Um, what did we bail out, in fact... Uh, we bailed out lots and lots of small banks. We did so more or less automatically through the FDIC. So you don't, you don't think about it that way. But in fact, uh, the, 
there, the large part of the expense of the bailouts came in the form of, of, seizure, of seizure of small banks, stockholders cleaned out, but the depositors compensated. Uh, it's not just big banks that need to be, size, uh, or sorry, lack of size is no protection against the risk right. of a banking crisis. So why are the banks allowed to charge such high rates on consumer debt? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are, we have a lot more transparency than we did, um, but uh, I thought that the, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of, uh, rates have to reflect true risks, but beyond that, well, this is why we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's why, which is the Elizabeth Warren piece of, of, uh, of Dodd-Frank. And by all accounts, it's having a quite a large effect. So in fact, although there may still be overcharging, I'm sure there is, but it's not nearly as bad as it was. So this is the way you do it. You do it by having oversight, by having some agency that can take complaints about, about bad practices and, um, go after, and, and, and go after those who are caught uh, behaving badly and, and put a little bit of the fear of God into those who aren't. Uh, or who haven't been caught at yet. Right. Well, another question, back to monetary policy and Jenny Ellen. Um, we have a question here which wonders, given the increased amount of money that has been printed, why haven't we seen significant inflation? Is it a threat? Can we expect to see inflation further down the road? Because, of course, this is, this is me talking, you know, all of economic history suggests that when you have long periods of central bank easing, you can end up with um, inflation? Actually, no. Um, the economic history of the 30s says no. The, uh, I mean, part of, back you know, six years or so ago, there, was, there were people saying, oh, look, the Fed's expanding, they're, they're printing all this money, um, it's going to lead to inflation, and some of us said, no, no, it's not, because consider the situation. And that was partly theoretical, that when you're at a near zero interest rates, the money just sits there. But also, historical, the Fed did a lot of money printing in, in the 30s, which didn't actually cause inflation. And Japan did a big increase in the money supply, uh, or strictly speaking, in the monetary base, uh, in the early 2000s, which didn't cause inflation. So when you had situations like this, it doesn't. It's not, it's not really a mystery. Um, when you have, when interest rates are almost zero, um, there's really, there's no strong incentive for banks to lend out the money Put out, you stuff their, them full of reserves, but they have no real urge to lend it out. Uh, what you're really doing when the Fed does a normal monetary expansion is it usually buys short-term U.S. government debt and, and issues uh, you know, uh, currency, roughly, in, in return. Um, in normal times, that matters a lot, but under conditions like this, it's just swapping one zero-interest obligation of the federal government for another zero-interest obligation of the federal government. It really just doesn't do anything. And if you worry, well, is this going to cause inflation? Well, only if if the Fed couldn't withdraw the money when the economy picks up, and they, they have no problem doing that. They have lots of ways that they can, can pull it back, and they will. My fear is actually that they'll, they'll do it too fast rather than, than too slowly. Uh, so, no, it's, a, it's one, of those, one of those things where people, from a, people think of it too simply. Uh, they, they say, well, printing money has to be inflationary. Well, no, it doesn't. It, much of the time it is, but there are times when it's not, and this is very much one of those times. Of course, there's a counter-argument which says, actually, when people say that inflation's low, they're only looking at traded good, goods inflation or services. They're not looking at asset, price, asset prices. 
I mean, you only need to look around, you know, Manhattan at real estate prices to say, actually, there is inflation in some pockets. Well, yes, but there's always going to be prices of some assets going up. And it's, uh, uh, you know, overall, U.S. housing prices, yeah, they've recovered much of the ground since the, the crash, but they're not... Um, enormously, and, and by the way, if it was as, if it was just asset inflation, if it was just bu- a bubble where people were building up Manhattan real estate prices very high with no real justification, that would be that would be true if if it were you know if rents were low. So it's just that things are expensive, but rents are low. So why are the prices? But you know, as you may have noticed rents in Manhattan are not exactly low. Uh, so it's not it's not at all clear that this is that. I think there was an overshoot in very, very high-end real estate uh, last year, and bubbles do happen. But the idea that this is the failure of overall monetary policy is, uh, I don't think is right. And, and of course, you want that reductio, the reductio ad absurdum, which is the, the, uh, the guy who said, no, look, inflation is coming, just look at the prices of real estate in the Hamptons, which is uh, sort of the very <laughs> definition of being out of touch. <laughs> yes. Well... So what does a prolonged period of low and negative interest rates mean for retirement savings? Um, you know, yeah. what are the baby boomers going to do with their money? Let's get real. You know, what does no. this mean in terms of the bottom line? It is very difficult. Uh, there's low returns. Uh, two things to say. First, uh, that's not the fault of the Fed. Uh, interest rates are low because the economy seems to need very, very low interest rates. Um, and it's, if you say it's our, that, that it's somehow artificial, well, no. You know, the, the, the definition of, of the interest rate that's right is the interest rate that does not produce inflationary overheating of the economy. And, and, and we're not seeing that. So it, it's not wrong. Um, actually, um, Narayana Kochalakota, former uh, president of the of the uh, Fed of uh, Minneapolis Fed, who's actually been a, become a very interesting commentator, had this great analogy. He said, "Low." In- some people say low interest rates are are like sugar or something. He said, "No, they're actually like insulin. Um, you have a sick economy that is somehow sick, seems to not be able to to get by without these low rates, and it would be better if it didn't need them, but it seems to need them. So we just need to keep on giving the uh, giving these doses. Um, and uh, the Yes, and so, yes, it's difficult. Um, retirement uh, savings are difficult, but it, this is one of these things where you really do need to realize that, that uh, how, the, how the other uh, 80% lives, that the, the great bulk of Americans have, do not have money, do not live off interest on their bank accounts, don't live off asset income at all. Overwhelmingly, what people live on is Social Security, real people, uh, and they... they um, uh, the the I won't say that the that the that the little old lady living on 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 the interest on the bank account doesn't exist, but it's not it's not the it's not a widespread story. The overwhelming if if you want to ask what is the biggest threat to the retirement security of the typical American family, it is the constant pressure to cut Social Security, not not uh, the the low interest rate right now. Well. I totally hear you on that point. But, I mean, going back to your analogy about insulin, I mean, that's actually a pretty scary image because, you know, if a body is in need of insulin, they are dependent on insulin for a very long time. Right. So are you essentially saying that these low rates could last for an entire generation, two generations? I mean, do you see anything that's actually going to cause interest rates to go up within the next decade or two? It's not obvious. Where does it? I mean, this is this is uh, 
where the whole discussion, more, more econ buzzwords, but it's, it's a phrase you will be hearing, I think, over the next several years often, secular stagnation, which is basically saying an economy that, that can't achieve full employment without very low interest rates and maybe not even then. Um, there's pretty good reason to think, to at least take that seriously as the future. And in Europe, uh, that's what the markets think, right? And in German interest rates, uh, short-term interest rates are, are, are negative because of the... Um, uh, of, of what the European Central Bank is doing, but even on German bonds, they're negative out to seven years. So um, people are not expecting Germany to, you know, basically not expecting Europe to be uh, in a posit in positive interest rate territory for a very, very long time. Um, and the U.S., where something might come along. Maybe there will be a huge boom in. Uh, in renewable energy investment, uh, which, which lifts us out. Maybe there will be, maybe the political situation will shift so that we really can do these big infrastructure investments we should be doing. And that would, that would actually have the effect of maybe making it possible for us to end the regime of low interest rates, maybe. Um, but if you ask about, the first is just a hope. The second, well, you know, it might happen soon, but I don't really expect us to be in a position to do that kind of thing until, you know, probably Chelsea's second term. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Right. New York, are you listening? <laughs> um, okay, well, let's turn on to a, a part of the economy which often makes people feel a bit more upbeat, which is the tech sector, tech industry. Right. So the question here is, what do you think about the current state of the tech industry? Valuations are sky high, and many internet startups have weak business models or are not profitable. Are we in another tech bubble? Wow. I don't really know. I mean, it's not a, not a field of, of, uh, of expertise. And it's not as, put it this way, it's not as obvious. I mean, 1999, I, I remember 99, and, and there it was just totally obvious how, that, that it, was, it was crazy. Um, but certainly seems to be an awful lot of uh, uh, value placed on, on companies that don't have any very obvious way of making money. And maybe, it, maybe I'm just getting old and tired, but it feels to me as if the pace of really fundamental innovation, stuff that really changes your life, has slowed down. That it's, uh, that the certain... Well, that's the argument that people, people like Peter Thiel have been arguing for. That's right. Uh, Peter Thiel... It, it, uh, All the bright ideas were basically had by his generation 30 years ago. Yes. And youngsters today just can't invent anything apart from iPhone apps or whatever else. Yes, the famous quotation is, we were promised flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, but I, I, I think that there is... Well, I, I feel... I don't think, because I don't really know enough. Uh, my sense is that there's something to that, that the way that, that, um, that we live is not as much changed um, by the technologies of the past decade as it was by previous changes. Actually, one of my little test of that, uh, this is impressionistic, um, but uh, I discovered that, the, that uh, Dilbert, the cartoon strip, has actually been running since, I think, 1993. Uh, maybe even before that. But the question is, and it's, it's about the office. It's all about you know, scenes of an office. And how dated do, the, uh, do old Dilbert cartoons look? Does that look like a completely different world of work? The answer is I don't think it does. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that the fundamentals of how we work, how we live, have changed nearly as fast as all of the hype about technology would suggest. 
So would you invest in the technology um, giants right now? Would you go out and buy Apple shares and things like that? Or does that look... Yeah, uh, well, I wouldn't because I would have no idea what I'm doing. And so that's a, general, a general rule is, is uh, uh, in that, well, in general, I don't invest in, in stocks uh, um, on an individual basis unless you really, really have some expertise. And, and in this case, I, I, I really don't. Right. Um, well, you said that to recover the economy, it's important to increase infrastructure spending um, by selling U.S. bonds. That means more interest payments in relation to other government spending. Do you think that's fair to future generations? Think about, first of all, the, the interest rate on, uh, let's, do, let's do dollar nominal. The interest rate on, on 10-year U.S. government bonds is, uh, is uh, under 2% right now. Um, the U.S. economy normally can be expected to grow between at least one and a half, maybe 2% a year, plus some inflation on top of that. So U.S. GDP is going to grow at three, three and a half percent a year. So suppose the U.S. government borrows a bunch of money, has to pay 1.8% interest. What if it doesn't pay, not only doesn't pay off the debt, but in fact doesn't even pay off all the, uh, pay the interest, just lets the debt sit there unless the, what will happen to the ratio of debt to GDP? The answer is it will fall because the economy will be growing faster than the interest around the debt. So this debt is not a burden, not a burden at all. And it's, uh, so that's, that's just a first, a financial thing. And then the idea that debt is a, when, when we increase debt, we're, it is mostly money that we owe to ourselves. It's money that's owed to the United States. It's not actually a burden on future generations because they're also going to end up owning the debt. Um, and then last but last not least, um, I don't think that leaving the U.S. with, uh, with uh, leaving, leaving New York City uh, um, totally dependent on a, a rail tunnel that was completed in 1910 is, is being fair to future generations either. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, we have a very different question from Twitter showing the power of modern technology. Right. Some inventions do have impact. And the question from Twitter is this. Should I be investing in Bitcoin? Okay. Uh, no. I mean, first on the general principle that if you don't understand it, you shouldn't be investing in it, and nobody understands it. Least, <laughs> least, least of all the enthusiasts. But also, I, I, have this, I, I keep on having... I, I know that there are some people who are enthusiastic about the technology, and the whole blockchain thing is supposedly very, very uh, uh, ingenious. Um, but it's, it's, it seems to be a solution to a problem we don't have. Uh, it's, it's on the one hand, a, uh, we say, well, this is a way to transfer, uh, to make payments electronically. You know, I, we can do that. There are things called credit cards. Uh, that we can do that pretty easily. But this one is, is secure. You don't need to know who the other person is. Well, is that really an issue? And in fact, it's turned out that, that you better actually know who, whether the people who are holding your Bitcoins are, are, are actually any good, uh, that you can lose your money that way. Um, or it's a protection against governments who are going to inflate away all of your dollars. And, well, that doesn't seem to be a problem either. So I'm not sure what this is all about. Um, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a combination of the romance of technology and a little bit of, uh, of libertarian derp uh, on top of it. So uh, uh, by the term of art, that's, it, I guess comes out of South Park. But, the, but derp has become the all-purpose term for nonsense that people just keep on repeating. And so there's, there's a lot of that. Right, right. Okay. 
Um, another very different question. Should climate activists embrace fracking due to its obvious cost and energy benefits, producing less carbon than coal and pushing coal-fired plants into further obsolescence? Okay. So are you a fracker or anti-fracker? I'm a worried about fracker. Um, in principle, it can help. Um, and the reason it can help is that uh, you're, the big problem with renewables is intermittency. Uh, sometimes the sun shines, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, one way to deal with that is storage, but another way to deal with it is by having surge capacity, by having gas-fired generators that you can use uh, uh, for times when the other stuff isn't, isn't available. Um, and fracking makes natural gas cheap. Um, and natural gas has a lot less carbon in it per, per BTU than coal dust. Uh, however, fracking done badly can produce lots of greenhouse gas emissions. And as best we can make out, it's being done badly right now. So you don't want to be in favor of an idealized fracking uh, system um, when, when the real one is, not, is, is actually making things worse. And as best I can make out that is, if not, it, it, it's pretty close to being true. So I, I would say what we need is, is a, a lot more oversight, a lot more effective regulation, and, uh, and pending that to be very skeptical about it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awkward position to, to take because it's, it's not a, a simple ban the thing and it's not a simple this is great, but somewhere in between like, uh, well, I could be for it if. If you get a lot more regulation. Yes. Uh, where, where the, uh, <coughs> Does it ever worry that the US economy is overregulated? I see, I mean, there will be places where that's true, but it's not, it's not obviously true. I mean, it, it was one thing 30 years ago where there were a lot, or uh, more like 40 years ago, where there were all kinds of regulations, actually, among other things, natural gas, but there were all kinds of, of things where, where there were obvious regulations were standing in the way of, of, of more efficient delivery of services. But are there really a lot of obvious ones uh, out there right now? I mean, um, so when the, business wails about red tape or worries about red tape, you say that's just special pleading, or mostly, mostly it is. I mean, it, it, obviously there will be examples, but boy, it's not um, by by the standards of by our own historical standards, by the standards of the rest of the world, the U.S. is a pretty open place to do business, and and it's it's hard uh, to to make the case that that excessive regulation is is a big drag on our economy now. Well, I'd like to then come to some of the two big questions, which we haven't really addressed yet, but really tie into one of the things that first made you famous for your Nobel Prize, which is trade, globalization, and, of course, income inequality. Right. And I have two questions here. One is, how can we in the U.S. best solve the problem of income inequality? And I would add into that another question, which is, can you explain to an unemployed U.S. factory worker the benefits of globalization. Okay. So, so you're sitting in Ohio, yeah. Indiana. No, let's, let's, start, <laughs> let's start with, with that one. Uh, because there's a funny... Uh, th there's a, 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 a widespread impression that basic economics says free trade is wonderful and everybody should be for it. And that's not at all what it says. <laughs> that's, uh, what it actually sa says is that free trade... Um, should make the country as a whole richer, but it can have, in fact, according to the standard models, frequently will have 
large effects on distribution. It will, in fact, uh, lead to um, uh, decline in, in, the, in the real wages of, of workers who are competing with, with imports. It will... Um, uh, it can, if you add some frictions, it can lead to unemployment uh, in, in some groups. And um, there's no... Uh, there's no... Uh, it, it gets sugar-coated a lot. There, a lot of people give you a yay free trade message which actually disregards what's in the textbooks. Um, I wrote the textbook, so I mean, yeah, no, literally, it's a... Uh, <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, um, now, the, the case for free trade, there, there's on the one hand the case that, well, it does make the country richer and you can, can, uh, can use it. You can, in principle, compensate the losers, but of course we tend not to do that. Um, the other case that is, I think, a very important one for if you have any kind of global perspective is that, that open markets, not necessarily perfect free trade, but open world markets have been enormously important to poor countries. That, and it's, it, never mind China, that think about a Bangladesh, uh, which is a country that uh, li- not too long ago was literally on the edge of, of starvation. <laughs> it's still very poor, but it's actually about twice as rich as it was before. And it couldn't do that. It's, uh, as somebody said, it's not a banana republic, it's a pajama republic. Uh, what keeps them uh, uh, almost literally uh, their heads above water, given, given the, the geography there, is the ability to export apparel, to first world markets, which in turn rests on, on low wages. And um, do you really want to close off that option? Um, it, now, it's, of course, it's very easy. Here, here I am, a, you know, a highly paid professional, and I'm saying to people in the, in, well, in, in the textile and apparel industry, for the sake of, of poor people in the third world, you're, you have to be uh, suffering. So the only way to justify it, I think, morally and politically, is to say, but you're also in favor of a lot of other things that would improve the, the standard of living of the, of the least well-off within your own country, which means that you have to be in favor of, a, of an enhanced safety net. You have to be in favor of higher taxes on, on top incomes. And also, in the, it's fun, the thing about the U.S. right now is that most of the jobs that were under threat from labor-intensive imports from the third world are already gone. And if you ask where are the low-wage workers most in the United States, a lot of them are in the service sector, where... What you can do for them is not simply um, redistribution, taxes and benefits, but also uh, increase their bargaining power. So unionization. Uh, there's, no, there's no fundamental reason why uh, Walmart should not be unionized. The reason it's not is that it grew up during a time when we had a, politically, an environment, a political environment that was enormously hostile to unionization. And if we can change that, you can do a lot. I mean, so you're basically arguing that man, most of the adjustment to open free trade has already occurred yes. in terms of the jobs that, lost, jobs that are lost? Not all, but most. Okay, that's not a great vote-winning argument. That's right. I, I, I'm really lousy at... at uh, yeah, I mean, my, my proposed Obama re-election slogan in 2012 was, not as bad as the Great Depression. Um, <laughs> but, the, uh, uh, but no, it's not a great vote-winning argument. Uh, and so... Uh, but what about the argument that actually it's not really about China anymore anyway, it's actually about technology. That's what's killing middle-class jobs. Well, it always was the case that technology was probably a bigger story than, than, uh, than trade, although trade, but trade was part of it. Uh, looking forward, trade is not a big part of it, I think. But it's, uh, it, looking back, it was some of it. Um, but also, it's, I would say it's not even that it's mostly technology, although technology is certain. I mean, it is true that even if we 
you know, put on Trump tariffs and, and completely closed the United States off to all trade and manufactured goods, um, we wouldn't get anywhere back towards the level of manufacturing employment we used to have because manufacturing just doesn't employ as many people as it used to. Uh, you know, the productivity is way, way higher. And, and so we, uh, most, of the, most of the decline of U.S. manufacturing is technology, not trade, in spite, although trade is part of it. Um, but I would also say that politics and institutions are tremendously important in causing this, these worker losses. Remember Denmark, which, you know, Denmark had its brief moment in the sun politically in the United States with uh, Bernie Sanders praising it and, and Hillary Clinton saying, well, I like Denmark too. Uh, <laughs> Denmark is... is it, Denmark has never been featured so heavily on the campaign. That's right. There's more uh, to Denmark than Lego. It's great. Um, but Denmark is, is as open to globalization as we are. It's part of the European Union. It's, uh, it has uh, free trade. It, it's uh, as much as we do. It, uh, the reason that Denmark has a much more equal distribution of income than we do is partly that they have a much stronger welfare state financed by higher taxation and partly that two-thirds of its workforce is unionized. So if you were fashioning a campaign slogan, say, for Hillary, to combat income inequality, it would be unions... Welfare state? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not quite working as a, as a, uh, as a campaign slogan. Uh, leave that to the, to the ads. Uh, but the three crackers. steps but, you'd want right oh, yeah, now so would the, be... In, in the jargon now, in the, in the, the stuff that... Uh, so I'm, I'm sitting now in, at the uh, uh, List Center at, at, at CUNY, which is, is concerned with inequality. That's uh, a low income. Uh, well, no, it's, it's, uh, and, it's, but, it's a centre that specialises in the study of income inequality, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the clearinghouse for all of the international data that we have. Um, and the, um, and the, the jargon is, we talk about pre-distribution and redistribution. Redistribution is taxes and, and welfare state programs. Pre-distribution is trying to enhance the bargaining power of workers through things like minimum wage increases and unions, and both. That's still, that's, now I've got a campaign slogan that's short and pithy, but also incomprehensible. But pre-distribution and redistribution. <laughs> so I'll figure out some way to make that work. Right. Well, we're almost out of time, so I have one last question, which is a lovely question from somebody in the audience, which is, what do you and Janet Yellen talk about when you get together for lunch? Oh, God. Aside from how you don't want a job in the White House or the Fed. Uh, so I actually haven't... Or do you want a job in the Fed? No, no, it's a... Uh, it... Um, so actually, I haven't I haven't had lunch with Janet for years and years now. It just uh, so it hadn't. But but no, I mean, gosh. When, but when you get policy oriented economists, I mean, I do talk to the, the you know people in the White House, whatever. But if if you, um, uh, boy. So first of all, it, it ends up being uh, a lot of it is just incredibly nerdy. Because, you know, the, the, the big policy issues, all right, everybody knows where, where anybody who's got a public figure stands. So instead, we did, so it ends up being a, a, about, you know, what, what, do you, what do you really think is the slope of the short-run Phillips curve these days? Or, you know, <laughs> uh, Which was actually why I started asking you about Trump first. <laughs> that's right. No, it, it, uh, so and I have to say, in general, I, my, my, when I do talk to people who are actually somehow or other involved with policy, they are desperate to not talk about the, the latest hot political issue. It, it's for them, because most of them are, like Janet Yellen, are, are 
former academics, often future academics, and it's like a vacation to go back to talking about uh, models and, and estimates and, and what are the facts here and, and not, uh, God, do, is there anything we can get past the, the Ways and Means Committee at this point? So it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of, really, and of course also we all talk about you know, family right. and, and, uh, and, um, well, and, and dinner. Well, <laughs> or lunch. I mean, I've just got my, my own one last personal question is this. I mean, you've sketched out a world over the next year or two which is not exactly wildly encouraging. Right. You know, yes, there is good news on the climate change side, um, but you look, you're looking ahead to a world where essentially interest rates are rock-bottom low for the foreseeable future, for a generation. Anybody who's hoping to invest their money um, is looking at basically zero, if not very low, rates for years to come. You're looking at a world where essentially income inequality doesn't look as if there's going to be any easy answers to reverse that soon, um, where the US economy may be recovering, but not exactly particularly um, strongly, where China is a debt bomb waiting to happen, and Europe is pretty stagnant. Um, energy markets are worrying. So I guess what I'm curious about is... Is there one thing that you'd like to see over the next year that could actually make you feel optimistic about the economic outlook? Well, um, the, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's no, I mean, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be careful. So, it's, it's a gloomy day outside. Let's give the audience something to feel cheerful about. <laughs> well, look, let me put it this way. I, I'm actually... It may be hard to believe, but I'm, I'm actually more optimistic about the, the prospects for political change um, and for, for political change to, be, to do good um, than I've been for a long time. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been writing for The Times through you know, starting in, in, in 2000, and, and we, there, were some, there were some really, really dark moments politically uh, in, in, over that stretch. I mean, you know, as, from my point of view, nothing can be as bad as, as, as it felt in 2003, 2004. And, um, and since then, what we've seen is we got, we got uh, a huge healthcare reform, which seemed, would, I, I don't think that seemed conceivable uh, um, 12, 13 years ago. Um, we have the beginnings, I think, of a really serious climate change policy, which I didn't think were conceivable. Um, you, I actually do think that the, the tide may be shifting on these, this infrastructure program I've been calling for. So uh, mostly, in spite of everything, in spite of all of the, the gloomy stuff we're talking about, I'm, I'm kind of a glass-half-full guy on the, on the, on the policy side. It, it's, uh, um, this is a more... Uh, a more um, potential upside world than I expected to see. If you, had, if you had asked me in 2005 what I thought America and the world would look like in 2016, I think I would have been much more downbeat than what we're actually seeing. So, uh, boy. Well, the great thing... <laughs> The great thing about reading Paul Krugman's columns is they are not just always very provocative, they're usually very entertaining... And I think tonight we actually got a bit of a bonus because he was almost optimistic too. So thank okay. you very much indeed. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan 
and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.